This is Our American Stories, and a popular men's magazine recently posed one of the most intriguing pop culture questions of all time. Who was cooler, Steve McQueen or James Dean? The magazine's nod went to McQueen. Guess that's why he's been crowned the king of cool. Steve McQueen was basically Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and Johnny Depp all rolled into one. In fact, Dear John's Channing Tatum and The Notebook's Ryan Gosling are currently battling it out to play the undeniably authentic McQueen in Hollywood's yet-to-be-shot biopic. But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries never tell you is what happened when there was no script to read and the cameras stopped rolling. This is Steve McQueen's story. Steve McQueen was the coolest of cool, with searing performances in blockbusters like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, and Bullet, To his love for fast cars, beautiful women, and life on the edge, he was one of the hottest cultural icons of the 20th century. Steve McQueen was born on March 24, 1930, just five months after the Great Wall Street crash. Within months, his father abandoned both he and his 19-year-old alcoholic mother, Julian. His mother left Steve at her uncle Claude's farm. Julian remarried an angry and abusive alcoholic, returned for her then 12-year-old son, and moved to Los Angeles. The new stepfather began beating both of them. Steve would spend the rest of his life avoiding his mother and searching for his father. Here's Steve's friend, Hilly Elkins. It was that, that underpinning that made what he did so effective because there was a gentle and real core of sensitivity to the man. Uh, there was a little boy always in whatever he did. By the time Steve was 14, he'd become a tough street punk in Los Angeles and was arrested. When a traveling carnival passed through the town, Steve joined for a time, then returned to the streets where he was arrested again. On February 6, 1945, Steve was ordered to the Boys Republic in Chino, California, a reform school for juvenile boys with behavioral and emotional problems. During his 18-month stint at the Boys' Republic he adjusted to, and even thrived on, the structure and discipline. But Steve struggled with dyslexia. After the ninth grade, he dropped out of school. He emerged from the Boys' Republic with a steel-eyed coolness and detachment, inner rage and a rugged street cred. He was a character forged in his pain, but it would become an archetype that would define the modern movie star, many of whom he would never meet. Here's actor Mel Gibson from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. I had so many people I admired in films, and Steve was one of these guys. So I actually studied, you know, how he would move and, and the kinds of things he would do. And I think that he tended to be a kind of a guy who was out there and and disinhibited in some ways, almost to the point of criminality. There was something about him that was sort of delinquent. At 16 years of age, he became a deckhand on a boat when AWOL worked in a brothel in the Dominican Republic and was arrested for vagrancy and served 30 days on a southern chain gang. 
At 17, he joined the Marines and served as a tank driver and the mechanic. He saved five fellow Marines from a tank before it sank into the Arctic waters. On the other hand, he destroyed the engine of a tank trying to, quote, make it the fastest tank in the division. The Marines made a man out of me, McQueen later admitted. I learned how to get along with others, and I had a platform to jump off of. Here's McQueen biographer Marshall Terrell. So when Steve McQueen was discharged from the military, he was either going to go to Spain and, and learn how to tile set from the great masters, or he was going to become an actor. And the only reason why at the time he decided that he was going to become an actor was because acting had a lot of women. In 1950, at the age of 20, Steve headed to New York City and rented a flat in Greenwich Village. Here again is Marshall Terrell. Steve McQueen's first acting gig was uh, in the Yiddish theater. It turned out he was not a very powerful theater actor, and so he got fired, I think, after the first week. He was perfect for film because film would capture your subtleties. And then if somehow or another, he got into Lee Strasberg's uh, actor studio. So that, that shows you the raw talent that Steve McQueen had. Here's Steve McQueen. I know that when I was studying in New York, uh, I knew that I couldn't afford to fail because uh, it was the only thing that I knew how to do and, and that uh, I didn't know any other trade. Despite some modest success, McQueen was getting nowhere fast until he met a rising Broadway star everyone was talking about. Here's Steve's first wife, Neil Adams McQueen. I was a Broadway baby. You know, I was, my life was all about dancing. I had just come out of Carnegie Hall. I had been rehearsing for a show called Pajama Game. There he was with a dog, a big dog. He had a German Shepherd with him. And he said, hi, you're pretty. And I said, I didn't know what to say. I just saw those blue eyes, you know. And uh, I said, well, uh, you're pretty too. I don't know. I, I suppose it opposites attract, but I guess it was ever a thing of... Uh fall in love with a girl at first sight, I guess that was it, because, well, I sure had to chase her for a long time. He picked me up on his motorcycle one night, and that was it. Four months later, we were married. Neil would always say, well, this is what I see in you. If you give a little of that in your performance, then you will be recognized. And that's where you really see the first of the McQueen persona starting to emerge. McQueen had raw talent, but Neil's unstinting belief in her husband was one of the chief reasons he was finally able to open up and trust someone. So he took it to heart when she told her husband what she thought of his television appearances. I gotta let them do to stand on my two feet, Mr. Preston. They're shaving the hair off of my head and I know it, but my mother don't know it. Do you hear me? Here's Neil. Instinctively, I knew that what was showing through was not the man that I knew. I said, what I keep seeing is Brand or Dean, and it's just, you know, it doesn't work. And he realized that what I was talking about was right. So I said, smile a little bit. I know it's, it's a tough thing to do because you're playing a killer, but when you're talking to your mother or something, you've got to be able to show something of you. So he did, and for the first time, then he got fan mail, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's good. And he knew I was on his team. So true, and he was not Brando, and he was not James Dean. The king of cool, Steve McQueen, his life story, after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the original score from Bullet, a terrific movie starring Steve McQueen, one of the great car chases in history. And let's return to his life story and Greg Hengler's work. Jack Harris was about to shoot a horror film that was to become a cult classic. The Bob, starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. Here's movie critic Ben Makowitz. Now, of course, the, the Blob, with its sequels and its cult status, uh, became a rather significant film historically. But, of course, one of the reasons why it's a significant film historically is because it stars Stephen McQueen. Without McQueen, I'm not sure the Blob takes on that stature. There was uh, a silver lining in the Blob for McQueen in that producer, Dick Powell, uh, actually requested a screener of the film. And, um, you know, he was impressed with McQueen's performance. And that led to Wanted Dead or Alive. On September 6th, 1958, McQueen began starring as the bounty hunter, Josh Randall. Bounty hunter, ain't you? That's right. Here again is Hilly Elkins. Josh Randall was a reactor. That was Steve's greatest talent. I mean, it was body language. It was the face. It was the raised eyebrow, the look across the camera. And the camera loved Steve. He started experimenting with a camera to see what worked and didn't work. And he was very, he was very studious about that. And this man with no uh, literary or artistic background had this incredible animal instinct about himself and about what worked for himself. He drove the directors and the producers nuts. He drove them crazy. If the script didn't work, he threw it out. The result was a killer series. Wanted Dead or Alive lasted three years, and director John Sturgis, who was filming his 1959 film Never So Few, starring Frank Sinatra, had taken notice of Steve McQueen. Sturgis thought McQueen's natural cockiness would be perfect for the part. Here's Hilly. And he was now in the movie business. The opportunity for a picture called Magnificent Seven came up, and the rest is history. Second story window. Curtain moved. I'm not in a good position. Let him stick his neck out. The real star of that film supposedly was Yul Brynner, but Steve came off as the real star. Your gun has got you everything you have. Isn't that true? Yeah, sure, everything. After a while, you can call bartenders and faro dealers by their first name. Maybe 200 of them. Rented rooms you live in, 500. Home, none. Wife, none. Kids, none. Not because of his uh, act, his part in the uh, in the film, but just because of his presence. His presence was incredible, and that's when we really knew that he had a really big chance at making it. Here's actor Gary Oldman. You have two people on a screen, and you want to watch this person more than you want to watch that person. You just want to look at Steve McQueen. He walks onto the screen and he kidnaps you. Here's Steve McQueen's grandson, actor Stephen R. McQueen. Steve McQueen's characters all had very defining qualities. He was the guy that was tough, but without putting it in your face. He was the guy that you don't want to mess with, but you look up to him. And as an actor, yeah, those, those are the parts you want to play. And those are, that's who you want to be. You watch a movie and there's always that character that you want to be in. He found a way to always be that guy. 
the characters that you've played on the screen who have been loners, they've been um, rebellious a little bit, uh, moody. Um, have you interjected your own personality into these characters? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You are a loner? Yeah. Steve's daughter, Terry, was born in June 1959. Eighteen months later came a son, Chad, In 1962, director John Sturgis brought Steve a script for a movie called The Great Escape. Steve was not impressed and demanded rewrites for his character. Here's Steve. There's a great deal of compromise involved, you know, uh, in movies, I suppose. And I I get a bit uh, undone when people try to use me or... uh or there's compromises or injustice, and uh, I fly off the handle. McQueen said, I want you to assign a writer to me so that I can put my signatures on the film. McQueen gets the rewrites. His character gets enhanced significantly. And uh, oddly, the writer who comes in, Ivan Moffat, who'd been Oscar-nominated, he's responsible for so many of the things in the movie which we now associate with McQueen, which really are the things in the movie that we associate with the movie. In the cooler, with the baseball glove and the great sound. The The motorcycle chase wasn't even in the original film. And he would not have been a movie star had those things sort of not played out on screen. Now a cinematic rock star, the 33-year-old McQueen set his sights on Hollywood legend Edward G. Robinson. He came with the name Cincinnati. Here's legendary actor Carl Malden. Steve McQueen realized that he had a big challenge when he did Cincinnati Kid. Nancy, this is Eric Stoner, the Cincinnati Kid. Here's acclaimed director Norman Jewison. That scene where he just looks at him and you feel the tension right away. I can get the money. I know you can. Robbins, he used to say, I'm going to gut him. I'm going to gut him. Give us it. You're good, kid. But as long as I'm around, you're second best. You might as well learn to live with it. Here again is Gary Oldman. The art of it is to make it look effortless. Steve McQueen made acting look as easy as breathing. One calm evening while McQueen was getting some fresh air, he was approached by fellow actor Robert Vaughn. They had this big party, best in Hollywood, young people are there. I saw Steve out on the veranda looking out toward the ocean. I said to him, when you were back there in Greenwich Village with Neil on the back of your bike, did you ever think you'd wind up like this? There was a long pause and I, he said, what makes you think I'm going to wind up like this? It was a terrifying moment, and he didn't even look at me. He just set it out into the air. Something was hovering over him all the time that made him aware that this was transitory, this life that he was living. Here again is Norman Jewison. He had all these stories about his his childhood, and and he was he was a bad kid. I mean, he was a and he, because he was looking for a father. That's who, and I bring it all down to that. Steve was really looking for his father. McQueen was getting bombarded with scripts. One of them was a film called The Thomas Crown Affair, directed by Norman Jewison. 
McQueen wasn't interested in the role of a white-collar bank robber, but his wife, Neil, thought it was perfect for her husband and knew just how to spark his interest. One morning, we were having breakfast, and I said, gee, honey, that's too bad, you know, that uh, Norman doesn't want you for um, the crown caper because I think you could do it. And he was eating his French toast, and he sort of stopped. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, Norman wants either Sean Connery or Rock Hudson for this part. I said, it's unfortunate, you know, because you could be, I think, really terrific in it. He said, you got to be kidding me. What do you mean he doesn't want me? I said, he doesn't. He doesn't want you. He's given the script to everybody in Hollywood but you. Here's Jewison. I said, you're not right for it, Steve. My God, this man wears a shirt and tie. He's a, he's a Phi Beta Kappa, graduate of Dartmouth. He says, that's why I want to do it. But maybe that was it. Maybe that's why he did it, because I turned him down. <laughs> McQueen started his own production company and Bullet became the company's first release. It was 1968 and the idea of playing an unconventional detective appealed to Steve. So did something else. When anyone ever does a top 10 list of car chases on screen, it's always Bullet as number one. The interesting thing is that in the script, it just says really two words, and that is car chase. And in McQueen's head, he knew exactly what he's going to go for. Bullet was released in October 68. The reaction was absolutely through the roof, and the profits were just crazy. And Steve McQueen as Bullet just became an instant icon. This is truly where the Steve McQueen legend really takes off. He had the X Factor in big letters, the X Factor, sex appeal. Here's Steve's second wife, Allie McGraw. Every man I met wanted to be him. Every woman wanted to sleep with him. Every kid wanted to be mentored by him. He just had that extraordinary, charismatic, sort of sexual, but dangerous, but soft underneath, bright, street smart power. The X Factor indeed, and Allie McGraw hit it just right. When we come back, more on the life story of Steve McQueen, more on the life of Steve McQueen here on Our American Stories. American Stories, you're listening to Cheryl Crow's Steve McQueen, and we return to Greg's story about the King of Cool. When it came to his children, the King of Cool had nothing but a warm heart. Here's daughter Terry, Neil, and son Chad. It was very important to him that my brother and I had a real sense of home. You know, we were able to go to him and talk to him, not just as a father, but as a friend. When the children were little, when they were first born, 
He really couldn't relate to them, you know. He just uh, sort of dismissed them until they were able to uh, become little persons. As soon as, as their personality started evolving, then Steve could relate to the little children. He instilled a lot of things in me and my sister that uh, he had learned. I think he, he used to say, uh, some to the effect that, that I mean, I, I've learned, so now it'll save you the bumps and the bruises. It was very important that we were not raised in the Hollywood, not to put down Beverly Hills, but the Hollywood Beverly Hills lifestyle, you know, of children that had no values. We, um, we were raised with the values that I would hope I can manage to instill in my children. With success and money, Steve McQueen collected cars and motorcycles, and they all found a home in his garage. Car and motorcycle enthusiasts formed McQueen's inner circle of friends, admiring and respecting him not as a Hollywood figure, but as a man after their own macho hearts. Here's Chad. He dug hanging out with guys like that, you know? I mean, he's really, he was in his element. I think for him, doing movies was a battle. You know, it was a, he knew that he had to get his game face on. Motorcycles, he just blended in with the rest of the guys. One of the guys Steve McQueen dug hanging out with was Roger McGrath. And I dug hanging out with Roger too, although I know him as Dr. McGrath. You see, Roger is my former college professor in Southern California, who also happens to be one of the coolest guys I've ever met. So I gave him a call and asked the Pacific Palisades boy to tell me about the first time he met McQueen. He began by telling me about having just seen The Great Escape in the theater right before they met. And here is Steve McQueen, and of course, he was my favorite by far in there, and I think most American guys, because he was the quintessential American, you know, rebellious and defiant, and supremely uh, tough and talented, you know, with that just, you know, cocky... Uh, attitude and, and that certain hard edge to him, you know. And it's something I think we all, you know, deep down in our hearts thought was that was an American, you know, that was the way we should be. And he certainly captured that in The Great Escape. All right, uh, there I was up there on somebody's private road. It was 1964, I was 17, and a, a senior at Palisades, and uh, and I was uh, doing wheel stands, making a lot of noise on my match list over these speed bumps. And all of a sudden I hear this whoop, whoop. And I thought, oh, gee, that's nothing could sound like that except a V12 Ferrari, you know. And so I thought, oh, God, some uh, resident here. Uh, you know, this is all in a split second. I thought, well, yeah, I guess he has a right to be a a little upset maybe and uh, but then on the other hand I was I was 17 and of course full of it and so I thought uh, and then another and all of a sudden right next to me is a Ferrari 250 GT Berlinetta and I look over expecting to uh, see the driver looking over and giving me the one finger salute you know and then I thought, and then we'd, we'd pull over and, uh, you know, see what happens. And, and instead, I look over there, and it's Steve McQueen. You know, here's 
Mr. Great Escape. <laughs> and uh, he's looking over, and instead of the one finger salute, he's motioning. He's motioning like, follow me, follow me. And so I did. And uh, I followed him into the garage, into the garage, and he jumped out. He was he was dressed uh, you know, kind of casual, but but smooth. Maybe he'd been at a meeting in Hollywood. And he said, "Give me five minutes." And he uh, split into the house. And I sat there in the garage, looking at a couple triumphs of his. True to his word, five minutes later he comes out, and he's wearing Levi's, a T-shirt, and a sawed-off sweatshirt. And he grabs a pair of goggles off a peg on the wall, and he said, let's ride, let's ride. <laughs> so off we went, you know. Then in 1970, despite a broken foot from a motorcycle racing accident, McQueen would race the grueling 12 hours in Sebring, Florida. McQueen was neck and neck with Mario Andretti in the Ferrari 512S. With an average speed of 113 miles an hour, McQueen would challenge for the lead with his Porsche 908 Spider throughout the 12-hour marathon. In the end, Andretti won, crossing the finish line a mere 23 seconds ahead of the second place McQueen. And it must be noted that Andretti had a three-driver team while McQueen only had a two-man team. Then McQueen threw everything into his 1971 auto racing movie Le Mans. With more than 70,000 hours of racing footage, nobody knew what the film's storyline was, and it was a critical and box office failure. His production company collapsed. He lost his agent. His 15-year marriage to Neil ended. The IRS presented him with a $2 million tax bill, and the finger of blame for all of it was pointing directly at Steve McQueen. It was a long fall from the top, and McQueen hit every step on the way down. And the final crash and burn occurred one night with a guy named Charles Manson and his so-called family. Steve McQueen was, was invited to uh, the house of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And the only reason he didn't was because on his way there, he saw a young girl hitchhiking, picked her up, and off they went. But then when he found out the next morning what happened, completely uh, became unglued. We have a weird homicide. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. One officer summed up the murders when he said, in all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. His paranoia had gone through the roof. The ghastly murders convinced McQueen that the deranged hippies and so-called flower children were out to get him. It turned out that McQueen had cause to be spooked. During the Manson family trial, it was revealed that McQueen was on their kill list, along with Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Tom Jones. Now we all know that Jesus walked on water, but did you know that Chuck Norris can swim on land? In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right. Steve McQueen was so macho that after Chuck saw him in the classic motorcycle documentary On Any Sunday, he had a wish. Here's Chuck Norris. 
I saw a movie call on any Sunday. I said, if there's any one actor I'd like to meet, that's the man I'd like to meet. And I'm in my karate school in Sherman Oaks, and I get a call, and my one of my instructors comes to me and says, uh, there's a call from Steve McQueen. I guess you're kidding. And so Steve became one of my private students and trained with me for uh, several years. I did my first film, and after I finished the film, I went and saw it, and I thought, and it's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. And Steve uh, came and saw it. And he said, well, it's not that bad of a film. But let me give you some advice. And when we come back, the last installment of the life of Steve McQueen, here on Our American Stories. Listening to the soundtrack from the Magnificent Seven. And when we last left off, Steve McQueen had just seen one of Chuck Norris's first movies and was about to give him some advice. Here's Chuck. He said, You are verbalizing things on the screen that we have already seen visually. And movies are visual, it's a visual thing. This is another thing. Let your character actors fill in the plot of the movie. And when there's something pertinent, very important to say, then you say it. He said, then the people will remember what you say. He said, that's what you've got to have in your movies. Memorable lines. The great comeback started with the 1972 film, The Getaway, which was the first of three big powerhouse films and performances for McQueen in the 70s. He followed that up with Papillon in 1973, and it was on the set of Papillon where legendary stuntman Stan Barrett, the former Golden Gloves champ, motocross racer, and black-belted Air Force veteran, had an unusual talk with his friend Steve McQueen. Here's Stan Barrett from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. He said, have you seen JN around? And J.N. Roberts was the best desert racer at the time. He said, well, what do you think? He said, he's really pretty far out there, this religion thing with him. I said, look, Steve, he's off the drugs. He's not doing this and that. I said, he's pretty excited about it. And Steve said, well, you know, I'm I'm religious too. I've gone to church. And I said, Steve, because you go in and out of a barn don't mean you're a cow. Normally that would have zapped somebody else uh, and might have been a put down, but, but Steve wanted to listen a little bit more. Stan basically asked, you know, do you have a relationship with God? That's, that's the key. I told Steve, I think, my story and, uh, you know, how I came to Christ and how to change my life. And he was not offended. He was inquisitive and listened to what I had to say. So, so Stan left McQueen two books, including Mere Christianity. You know, I said, Steve, this ain't no rehearsal, man. You know, you're not getting out of here alive. And I said, you know, you'd better think about it. In 1977, McQueen not only left his second wife, Allie McGraw, but he also left Hollywood, something no Hollywood star had done before. 
When the offers kept coming, McQueen ripped the mailbox from its post and tossed it into the ocean and told his agent to charge $50,000 just to read a script. Here again is Steve's son, Chad. I think when you get to some sort of stardom like that, you would you say, well, is this all there is to it? I mean, I thought there was more out of life, and I think he was searching for that. At 47, McQueen decided to start a whole new life. At 23, Barbara Minty was the perfect partner. It was almost inevitable, but Steve got interested in airplanes. After moving 60 miles northwest of Los Angeles to Santa Paula, Steve was looking for a flying instructor at the local airport. So he was given the name of Sammy Mason, who um, was a stunt pilot uh, and a test pilot for Lockheed and a very, very, very well-respected man. Here's McQueen's widow, Barbara Minty. I've never seen him really respect somebody so much. Really? I mean, Sammy was everything in his eyes. Steve saw in my dad something, you know, that I just took for granted. You had to respect him. He didn't demand it, but you just wanted to give it to him. Mm -hmm. He recognized in him a, a spirit of confidence, a spirit of peace. And it's hard to describe, but when you're around him, you, you, know, you just really felt comfortable. He had been looking for father figures all of his life, and, and he definitely found one in Sammy. He was his mentor, um, his hero, his... Yeah his everything. They just became solid, solid friends and um, they had a family life that I'm pretty sure that Steve had never experienced and they, they just accepted him, took him into their hearts, took him into their home and um, Sammy was so solid spiritually. Yeah. He wasn't a preacher, yeah. he lived it. And finally one day he basically said, what is it about you that's different? I can't quite put my finger on it. And Sammy said, well, Steve, I'm a boarding in Christian. He came home one day and he says, Honey, put a dress on. We're going to church. And I'm like, Oh, okay. It came completely, completely out of the blue. It wasn't Sammy asking Steve to come to church. It was Steve asking Sammy if he could come to church with him. My dad told me, he says, you know, Steve asked if he could go to church with me. So I, I thought, well, that's, that'll be a one-time thing. You know, Steve and his wife, Barbara, uh, went to church with Sammy and his wife, Wanda, uh, faithfully every week up in the balcony of the, of the uh, Ventura Missionary Church. Here's then-pastor of Ventura Missionary Church, Leonard DeWitt. After church, I was standing out in the foyer greeting people and uh, felt somebody tap me on the shoulder. And I turned around and uh, he said, uh, Pastor, I'm Steve McQueen. And I said, hi, Steve. He, he just had a bunch of things he wanted to know uh, about the Christian life. What about the Bible? And yeah. can you really rely on it? And yeah. so forth. His questions were really good. And so after two hours, he sat back and he said, well, that's all of my questions. And I said, Steve, I have one. And he, he grinned. He said, you want to know if I'm born again, don't you? And I said, that's really what's important to me. And so then he said, you remember the Sunday that you invited people who wanted to receive Christ? When you gave that invitation, he said, that's when I accepted Christ. It sort of all clicked that if I could be forgiven, I can start all over again, and, and I can have that inner peace that I wanted for so many decades. Going to church and, and 
Sammy, I think, helped him a lot. I mean, his whole life just changed. The King of Cool was now doing one of the most rebellious things he had ever done in his life. But about six months after becoming a Christian, several friends began noticing McQueen's unhealthy appearance. Here's what Roger McGrath saw while spending time with Steve at the Santa Paula airport. And then one day I came home and I remember I I told my wife that Steve kind of let himself go. I think I used the term, oh, he's looking kind of rasty, you know. Um, And then I was out there a couple weeks later hanging out with him. His abdomen was kind of protruding a bit. And Steve was always a very lean guy without an ounce of extra anything on him. Probably a little bit under five uh, ten and uh, probably didn't weigh more than 150 and so it looked like something was kind of pushing out against his t-shirt and he kind of uh, looked and it can help me noticing and he, he said I uh, said I've been trying to keep it quiet it's uh, it's the big C you know it's cancer here's Allie and Barbara 50 years old it was way too early for this story to happen and yet He'd been exposed to asbestos, which is, I gather, what was the specific root of that cancer. He was in the Marines, and he was cleaning up the... um, Of course, he went and chased some girl, and he got in trouble. And they made him clean out the hulls of these ships, and they had asbestos. That's where he breathed in the asbestos, and asbestos takes... Mesothelioma takes probably, usually 20-some years to get into your body and get going. Here's Steve's close friend and racing buddy... Buddy Eakins. He got very, very close with people, like he was trying to make amends for uh, his past life and, and trying to make up for everything uh, to clear his way, you know, to God. Steve also made a phone call to his wife, Neil, for the many indiscretions he committed during their marriage. On November 3rd, 1980, As McQueen's visit with the Reverend Billy Graham was wrapping up, Steve turned to his new friend and called out, I'll see you in heaven. Four days later, Steve McQueen was dead. Right then, right here, the King of Cool made the ultimate great escape to his forever home with his forever father, the King of Kings. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's a heck of a story. And I think I know a lot about acting and actors, but my goodness, Greg, great job on that. And, you know, you heard that great line from The Son, and The Son had said that, you know, the guy, the guy who he loved, his father, had experienced this stardom, but that there had to be more in life. There had to be something more than scripts and fame. And by the way, we, we hit that so many times. And unlike so many other stars who end up killing themselves, McQueen did something different. He went and searched for some kind of deeper meaning in his life. And he sought out other sources of meaning and other friendships. And you won't hear this kind of story anywhere else, but here on Our American Stories, we pull no punches. We take the stories where they go. And this one ended beautifully. Steve McQueen's life story here on Our American Stories. And you can hear all that we do. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we go out as we started this segment 
with the sound from the Magnificent Seven. And watch Steve McQueen's acting, particularly in the Thomas Crown Affair. It may be as good a piece of acting as you've ever seen, and the same with Sand Pebbles. Steve McQueen's story here on Our American Story. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we talk about everything here on this show from the arts to sports from history to well just about anything and we do eulogies we do stories of songs and every once in a while we just go right back to some of the American classics and some of the great literature of the past stuff that well schools just aren't paying attention to anymore but we're a part of our heritage for so long and one of those writers is the American poet Walt Whitman and his poem here that we're about to play, a recording of it, a terrific recording of it, is Pioneers, O Pioneers. And it was first published in 1865. The poem was written as a tribute to Whitman's fervor for the great westward expansion in the United States that led to the California gold rush and exploration of the Far West. And by the way, we've spent a lot of time on the subject with our Lewis and Clark stories, the most epic road trip ever. But right now, here's Walt Whitman's poem as read by Will Gear with accompaniment by Ennio Marconi's Ecstasy of Gold. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Come, my tan-faced children. Follow well in order. Get your weapons ready. Have you your pistols? Have you your sharp-edged axes, pioneers, oh pioneers? For we cannot tarry here. We must march, my darlings. We must bear the brunt of danger. We, the youthful, sinewy races, all the rest on us depend. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, you youths, western youths, so impatient, full of action, full of manly pride and friendship. Plain I see you, western youths. See you tramping with the foremost. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Have the elder races halted? Do they droop and end their lesson, wearied over there beyond the seas? We take up the task eternal, and the burden, and the lesson. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the past we leave behind. We debouch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world. Fresh and strong the world we seize. World of labor and the march. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We detachment steady throwing down the edges, through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing as we go the unknown ways. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We primeval forests felling, we the rivers stemming, vexing we and piercing deep the mines within. We the surface broad surveying, we the virgin soil upheaving. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Colorado men are we, from the peaks gigantic, from the great Sierras and the mighty plateaus, from the mine and from the gully, from the hunting trail we come, pioneers, oh pioneers. 
from Nebraska, from Arkansas, Central Inland Race are we. From Missouri, with the continental blood interveined, all the hands of comrades clasping, all the southern, all the northern pioneers. Oh, pioneers. Oh, resistless, restless race. Oh, beloved race in all. Oh, my breast aches with tender love for all. Oh, I mourn and yet exult. I am wrapped with love for all. Pioneers. Oh, pioneers. Raise the mighty mother mistress, waving high the delicate mistress, over all the starry mistress. Bend your heads all. Raise the fanged and warlike mistress, stern, impassive, weaponed mistress. Pioneers, oh, pioneers. See my children, resolute children, by those swarms upon our rear, we must never yield or falter. Ages back in ghostly millions frowning there behind us urging. Pioneers, oh pioneers. On and on the compact ranks, with accessions ever waiting, with the places of the dead quickly filled, through the battle, through defeat, moving yet and never stopping. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh to die advancing on. Are there some of us to droop and die? Has the hour come? Then upon the march we fittest die. Soon and sure the gap is filled. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the pulses of the world, falling in, they beat for us. With the western movement beat. Holding single or together, steady moving to the front. All for us, pioneers, oh pioneers. Life's involved in varied pageants, all the forms and shows. All the workmen at their work, all the seamen and the landsmen, all the masters with their slaves, pioneers, oh pioneers. All the hapless silent lovers, all the prisoners in the prisons, all the righteous and the wicked, all the joyous, all the sorrowing, all the living, all the dying, pioneers, oh pioneers. I too, with my soul and body, we a curious trio, picking, wandering on our way, through these shores amid the shadows, with the apparitions pressing, pioneers, oh pioneers. Blow the darting bowling orb, blow the brother orbs around, all the clustering suns and planets, all the dazzling days, all the mystic nights with dreams, pioneers, oh pioneers. These are of us, they are with us, all for primal needed work, while the followers there in embryo wait behind. We today's procession heading, we the route for travel clearing. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh you daughters of the West, oh you young and elder daughters, oh you mothers and you wives, never must you be divided. In our ranks you move united. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Minstrels latent on the prairies, Shrouded bards of other lands, you may rest, you've done your work. Soon I hear you coming warbling, soon you rise and tramp amid us. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Not for delectation sweet, not the cushion and the slipper, not the peaceful and the studious, not the riches safe and parling, not for us the tame enjoyment. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Do the feasters gluttonous feast? Do the corpulent sleepers sleep? Have they locked and bolted doors? 
still be ours to die at hard and the blanket on the ground, pioneers, oh pioneers. Has the night descended? Was the road of late so toilsome? Did we stop, discouraged, nodding on our way? Yet a passing hour I yield you in your tracks to pause oblivious, pioneers, oh pioneers. Till with sound of trumpet, far, far off the daybreak calls. Hark, how loud and clear I hear it wind. Swift to the head of the army. Swift, spring to your places, pioneers, oh pioneers. And there you have it, folks. It doesn't get better than that. This is Our American Stories. Our American Story, and it's time for our Rule of Law series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this story, one that may not seem like a story on the Rule of Law, but is. Here's Dave Grohl, the frontman of the Foo Fighters, and earlier, a pretty unknown drummer who joined a pretty unknown band called Nirvana. When I joined the band, they had this demo that sounded amazing. It sounded huge, and it sounded different than the things that they had done before. And everyone talked about Butch, 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 Butch. Butch Vig, who owns Smart Studios, a recording studio in Madison, Wisconsin, where Nirvana recorded the demo for their breakout album, Nevermind. Bands like Death Cab for Cutie and Beck did some stuff here. Freddie Johnson did a lot of stuff here. And a lot. Uh, the list is pretty extensive. If you go online, you'll see this, this huge list. You're listening to a guy named Phil Parhamovich, and he's saying here because he and I were literally there talking inside the now defunct Smart Studios. And that list he mentioned of who's also recorded here. Includes the Smashing Pumpkins, their debut and breakout album Gish was done here, as was Fall Out Boys, and Soul Asylum, Everclear, Jimmy World, and Tegan and Sarah are also on that list. But when Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana recorded here, I think it was pretty basic. It was just a pretty basic building. I think it was built in the late 1800s as a Jewish grocery store at the time. When Butch Vig first came in here, I imagine it was kind of still, you know, in some state like that. So this was the room where, you know, Kurt Cobain and all those guys did their thing. Billy Corgan with the Smashing Pumpkins, and that's where Butch would have sat and recorded them. They were doing a lot here, starting to kind of create that grunge sound, and Butch was really, really that guy. A guy from Madison, Wisconsin, of all places, shaping the 90s iconic grunge sound. It's most identified with a city 1,925 miles away, Seattle. How did that happen? Somehow, you know, I think when you're in the scene, you just pay attention to the albums that you like, how they sound. They probably liked what was coming out of the studio and sought him out. 
Conveniently, Butch Vig didn't have to seek out a studio when he recorded himself. Well, he'd started Garbage here. He started his band Garbage, and they were doing really well. They moved to L.A., like all big bands do. Now, strangely enough, this story isn't about Butch Vig or about any of these famous people who were in this totally nondescript studio that doesn't have a single solitary landmark or sign marking all the fame that was created here. And not a zip. And why are we talking to this Phil guy, by the way? He's not famous. At least not yet. So, uh, I... The weird thing is, I had seen it, I, I'd known about it. The studio's legendary. I knew about smart studios, and I kept like trying to find it. And I, I had been passing it on the road a lot without knowing what it was, because it's this ugly, derelict building. You know, it's like the windows are all bricked up. It looks like this crack house or abandoned place, you know. And I didn't really realize it was that. And finally, someone, I think, pointed out, no, that was smart studios right there. I was like, huh. And so the next time I was driving by, I had had money saved up. I had around 100 grand or so. And I was trying to find a house. And Phil, who's a musician, thought to himself, why not live in a famous recording studio? And he was going to until the police pulled him over for a seatbelt violation. So he threw me in the back of the car and he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart and found my cash and uh, got extremely excited. At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, you know, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? And what's going on here? This is the story of Phil Parhamovich. Born and raised in the Cleveland area, played football, really got into art and music, started recording music, kind of making fake albums with my brothers, making the album art, and we'd get up on the bed and do these fake concerts and stuff. And uh, really was just a sports kid, an art kid, and somehow was like, had the perfect combination of both. It was a mix that some people couldn't quite understand. I started going to school for, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I wanted to do like Marvel comics. When I was a kid, I had established maybe 200 superheroes. And we would laminate them with scotch tape and cut them out and play with them. It was our toys, you know. Did you not have much money growing up? Yeah, we were poor. My parents were divorced after about sixth grade. My mom wasn't home very much. She worked, and then she went out after work, and uh, I raised my sister pretty much alone. And whatever was in the fridge, we had, I think we had a box of frozen pork chops that we ate off of for a while, and, and uh, it was pretty tough. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. A childhood that's definitely not ideal, but also one that can definitely inspire creativity like Phil's. You almost have to to get by creatively finding ways to feed yourself and have something to play with. So I was going to art school in Nova Scotia at the time, and my father became an accountant, 
and he was doing the taxes for the video director of the Browns and they needed an intern. They just hired Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach, and they needed an intern because they were going to do their own TV show in-house. They wanted somebody with some art school experience or at least some experience with doing art and graphics. Each segment had a graphic going into it. And they wanted somebody who would kind of have an idea of how to do that. And so they hired me to kind of take the TV show responsibility. And they hired another guy to do more of the football stuff. And it turned out I ended up knowing more about football than anybody in the department. So I did all the football stuff, shooting practices and editing the tape. And, but I also did the TV show and everything from interviewing the players to building the sets to editing the segments together and all that so I was totally into it it was a cool job except it was the schedule was such a grind I mean there was one day a week we didn't sleep we just worked right into the next day and Saturdays and Sundays we worked so from just before the start of training camp until past the end of the season a couple weeks there was no days off and one day a week you didn't sleep the other days a week we'd work until about one in the morning get up and start working again about seven so it was a grind. I worked there for two years, and after those two years, I uh, I had had enough, and I, I was really getting more into music. And at that point, I wanted to move to Minneapolis. I had gone to school with a dude who was in a band who was becoming very successful in Minneapolis, and that scene was really blowing up there, Soul Asylum and The Replacements and Husker Du, and my friend's band, The Hang-Ups, was right in the midst of all that stuff. and knew all those guys and was playing shows with them so I quit and moved out to Minneapolis and started pursuing music and then I would work in the spring in NFL Europe so I spent about four or five months in NFL Europe making money and then coming back and launching into my music stuff. Phil also searched for his dream country house. He'd buy one, fix it up, conclude that it wasn't his dream house, and sell it. This is how he accidentally saved up the $100,000 cash that he didn't keep in a bank but with him and why the police were able to take it from him. I'm not really that into our system of how we do things. I didn't see why a CEO should be making a bunch of money off my money when I could hide it just as well. And when we come back, we continue with our Rule of Law series and what happened to those hard-earned dollars in Phil Parhamovich's car. The cops were interested in that $92,000, and they thought they had every right to take it. And when we come back, more of our Rule of Law series here on Our American Story. Visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org and make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We're going to send you the top five stories of the week. We can either listen to them or read the transcription. ouramericannetwork.org
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, as you well know. And this one, well, this is just as good as it gets. We return to musician Phil Parhamovich's story of trying to buy the legendary Smart Studios where Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, and so many others recorded, and how Phil's preference to keep his cash with him was treated like a crime. Worked out a contract, sent it to him. He signed it, okayed it. I gave him the earnest money. And I think in a couple days, two or three days, I left on tour. Here I had all of my money in this box, and it was a lot of money. And the apartment I lived in, they had the boiler room for the whole building in my unit. And they would just allow themselves in whenever they wanted. Just like no knocking, no ringing the doorbell. Just like, hello, we're here to service the boiler. So I'm getting ready to leave on this little tour. I'm like, well, here I've got this studio under contract. So like, I'm super excited about that. My life is just like, woo And all of my money is not really being able to be hid very well. And I'm like, well, I could bring it in speaker. I'll have it with me on stage. So I'll leave on this trip and I'm starting out in this blizzard, this horrible blizzard. And I was going like 20 miles an hour for six hours through Iowa. Like I was, wasn't moving at all. And I finally stopped, and I stopped on the, the side of the road by a hotel, slept there for a few hours, and I got back up in the morning. I missed my first show in Denver because I just couldn't make it that far. And I was driving on to the next show in Wyoming, and I passed this police officer on the right-hand side of the road. And I could tell he had just stopped someone that said canine unit on his car. And uh, I know a little bit how they are. like They like to search people whenever they can, but... I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was going under the speed limit in the slow lane behind a truck at that time. And I remember I had to go to the bathroom really bad, so I was like really looking for that next stop. There were high winds on the highway. I'm driving along and that cop races up alongside of me and is just studying me for a long time. At that point, I kind of felt like prey. Finally pulls me over. He comes up and immediately says, could you please come back into my car? like to ask you a bunch of questions and um, I was like okay well I don't see see why not you know he said he was stopping me for for my seatbelt he saw I didn't have my seatbelt on I was like well this is kind of strange I just don't, don't have my seatbelt on this guy is obviously super aggressive we go back into his car so he starts asking me all these questions well, where are you from where are you going you know what what are you doing what band is it where are you playing so I'm just answering these questions you know they're simple questions and to each question he's opposing them he's like well that that can't be true how can that be true and he's like manipulating every question into this kind of doubting thing you know and after a while it started to get just confusing and kind of strange and it just seemed like a real head game was happening so finally he says well i want to search your car with with my dog and uh it's like well that's fine you know i wasn't i wasn't worried i don't i don't do drugs and so I was like, that, that's fine. So he brings his dog up, and he had three tennis balls in his car door. He grabs one of them, puts it in his hand under his sleeve. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. I wonder what he's going to do with that. And he walks up to my car, and this dog is, is just a dumb dog. It's, it's really, like, not interested in anything. And uh, the dog is just kind of sitting there staring at this officer. And finally, the officer is, like, trying to get the dog interested in the car. 
He's doing whatever he can to get the dog interested. The dog has no interest in it. Taking the dog, bringing his nose right up against the door and stuff, the dog's not doing anything. And finally he takes this, this ball and starts to like jerk this ball up in the air to get this dog to play with the ball. So the dog starts to jump. And then he immediately, wastes no time, goes to the other side of the car and makes the dog jump again on the other side. It was clear that he, at this point, wanted to get on videotape from his car the dog jumping around my car. So he comes back, he's like, well, my dog reacted to, to your car. Like, this is escalating. This is getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm um, like, I, you know, how did a seatbelt turn into, all of a sudden you're searching my car, you're faking it with this ball. Now I'm getting thrown into the back of your car. What's going on here? It got I, really scary at that point. I felt like completely no power to do anything. And he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart, just like ripping things, you know. Finally, he started to take apart all of my music stuff and found my cash, got extremely excited, got like hyperventilating excited, and came back and was like, well, I found this cash and blah, 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 and like, whose is it? At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like, cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash, weapons, blah, 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 multiple times. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? It implied to me that it was illegal to carry cash. He grouped it right in with drugs and weapons. The rule of implication over the rule of law, the actual. It made it seem like this could have been illegal. I didn't really know. And really all I started thinking about was my daughter and being able to see her when I get done with this tour. And she means the world to me, you know? And like any time without her, I was like, oh my God, am I gonna be thrown in jail for carrying cash? And I just wanted to get back to her at this point. So I said, well, the speakers aren't mine. And I lied. Then all these other policemen showed up, I think about three or four cars worth. And they were like high-fiving and stuff about the money and laughing and joking. I honestly felt like I was in a dream. And I like more than once pinched myself. I was like, God, if this is a dream, like, please wake up. Like, what is going on? And here I'm watching like my life savings being taken, you know, stuff that I've worked so hard for. So anyways, the cops are like done with the search and they didn't find anything. And it was so funny. They were like trying to take the spare tire off the spare and like jumping up and down on it and you know like they had ripped everything apart they thought so for sure they were going to find something in my car so they didn't and finally this uh detective came up this plainclothes detective and he says well if you'd like to go you know you can sign this waiver waiving your rights to this whatever we found and then you can just go The waiver said that the money would be given as a gift to the state of Wyoming and specifically to their division fighting drugs. First, who gives money to the government? And second, why the drug division, their stop of Phil, had nothing to do with drugs. He didn't have a single drug on him. And he just made it sound like really simple and I was like well so what if I don't sign the waiver and he didn't make that sound so simple he wouldn't really tell me and I kept asking him over and over maybe five six times what happens if I don't sign it 
and uh, he wouldn't say. He, he had to say something, right? I mean, at first he wouldn't. He just kind of like, well, it, it'll be bad. It'll be bad, you know. And I was like, well, what exactly will happen if I don't sign it? You know, he's like, well, he kept trying to avoid it, and then finally he's like, well, you know, we're gonna go through your phone. We're gonna go through everything, even more in your car. You're gonna be here for a long time probably going to spend some time in jail. He wouldn't tell me, like, why am I going to be here for long? I was like, well, why would I be here for a long time? You've already gone through my car. What would happen? He's like, well, we got to go back to the court. We're going to have to get a, some kind of other thing to make sure we could, we could search even deeper or whatever. I, it was really unclear, and he made it sound bad. It's hard to in that situation. I was really scared. I was nervous. I had to go to the bathroom really bad for probably over four hours at that point. And that's bad, you know? It's just... It, I was not in a good state. I was tired from not much sleep the morning before. And just from driving for two days, you get kind of, it's hard to focus. And a couple times, I was like, so, if I sign this, I can just go. And he's like, yeah. And honestly, I just, all I thought about was her. If I'm thrown in jail for a month, you know, and people are, are talking and saying bad things about me, like, it's going to affect her and... I was like, okay, I guess it's worth it, you know. If I can just go, the 92 grand, I'll just let go and make a fight for it in the future. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Phil Parhamovich's story. A musician, cash in his speaker, seized by the cops, signs away his rights to the money unwillingly, under duress. You'll find out the rest of the story after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of musician Phil Parhamovich's story of the police pressuring him to gift his money to them, despite not charging him with a crime. The last few years, you may have heard of a controversial police practice called civil asset forfeiture. Like most things in life, it started out with good intentions, allowing police to seize the assets of, say, drug kingpins, whom they suspect are using those assets to commit crimes. But today, it's gotten so out of hand that a grandma in Illinois had her car taken from her because her grandson borrowed it, was dealing drugs in it, and she didn't have a clue. When she went to the police with her true story, it was too late. They had already sold their car and profited from the sale before her grandson even appeared before a judge and justice was served. Grandma couldn't get to work and injustice was served to her. And over a single decade, the Drug Enforcement Agency has seized over $3.2 billion in private property from individuals that they never even charged with a crime. Think about that. You can have your property taken from you without ever being charged with anything. There now is a movement afoot to ban civil asset forfeiture and at a minimum have it so that you have to be charged with a crime before your property can be seized. 
And yet, these government officials can be sneaky and creative creatures to get around this whole ugly debate. They've resorted to taking a whole other path, a side road, to the same goal. They're trying to stop civil forfeiture. The governor keeps vetoing certain things and they're allowing to have this waiver where they could kind of get around it by saying, okay, well, you weren't convicted of anything, but now you're agreeing to gift the state of Wyoming whatever it is we're seizing. It's just manipulation, you know, it's just, it's thievery. Whether you're doing with the fine print or whatever, it's the same thing. I didn't go to any of the shows. <laughs> I was, I just lost my life's savings. I was completely despondent, you know, I was just beside myself. I drove away in a state of like, not knowing what had just had happened. I spent the next two hours probably just collecting myself, honestly, trying to like, figure out what do I do here. And so I stopped at a McDonald's, got on the Wi-Fi with my laptop and just started to research. I didn't even know what civil forfeiture was at this point, you know. Now I learned about it. I started to look for attorneys right off the bat. And so I found the Institute for Justice and Dan Albin. His name had come up in a few of the, the cases. And I was already late at night, so I couldn't call at that point. First thing in the morning, I called up. I asked to speak to him. He answered the phone. And I told him what had happened. And he says, okay, that's very interesting. We want to help you if we can. And from that point on, they didn't formally represent me but they helped me every step of the way. And they had to vet me. They really had to look deeply into who I was and was my story true. And they came out here and checked everything out. They went through my phone, they went through my wallet, they went through everything. It was very intense. Right away we started to send letters to the state of Wyoming, requesting the money back, claiming that it was mine. And the state of Wyoming just kind of dragged their feet. They weren't going to do anything. They weren't going to give anything back. And yet, Phil didn't have the luxury of dragging his feet with his pending purchase of smart studios and a home. I contacted the person who I made the contract with because we were set to close and all that. Everything was going to go forward. And I, and I told him what happened. And he said, OK, well, why don't I give you a nine-month lease? We'll see where your court case is at the end of the, the nine months. And that's happening right now. We're at that kind of end point. We got some dates that we have to get my bank financing papers to him and stuff. But uh, so that was that was very cool of him. And they've basically said to look, if, I mean, obviously we like the guy. We're trying to help him out here. But ultimately, if you can't put this money together, we will, you know, sell it to someone else. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the reality of of real estate he's got property he needs to sell and i mean one of the unfortunate things is because of this i don't think a lot of people knew this place was for sale and now that this is all starting to come out a lot of people do and they're contacting me they're like hey i wanted to buy a place hey i wanted to buy buy that place so we'll see what happens here um i could lose it i could very easily it's to me it's hanging in the balance it's 50 50 But Phil did have one arrow in his quiver that the state of Wyoming didn't know about. They had no idea that I had representation at that time. They thought that he was just some poor yahoo out there that they could take advantage of. 
And this wasn't just any old representation, the Institute for Justice has 44 attorneys who work full-time fighting for the liberties of Americans who don't have the resources to fight for themselves when they're unjustly targeted by their government. These guys have litigated five cases before the Supreme Court and won four of them. Wyoming's government didn't know this when they violated the rule of law again. They had had a hearing uh, in July without letting me know about it. And we had already corresponded about eight times back and forth. You know, they knew everything. They had my addresses, they had my phone number, they had my emails, they had everything. And there was no attempt to contact me. So they had this hearing without me, decided since I didn't show up to forfeit my money, and I, I would have been there for sure. And so the case was supposedly closed. This hearing that we asked for was just to reopen it, saying that, hey, we had been in good contact, uh, you should have been able to notify me, so you need to reopen this case. And we got out there, and it turned out that the judge was on a leave of absence, his wife was ill. So there was a retired judge, military judge, an older guy, 70-some years old, I think, and he showed up there, and in the morning of the court hearing, all of a sudden, one of the senators of Wyoming was trying to call me, one of the House of Representatives was trying to call me. And this sudden rush of interest wasn't accidental. The Institute for Justice worked with the publication Vox to have a long expose on this saga come out the very morning of the hearing. The article had dropped. It was like, boom. Oh, my God. And there was reporters there and everything. And right before that hearing, because of this article and all this stuff blowing up, I believe, the judge pulled everyone to the side and said, hey, let's, let's just get this done. Let's not even worry about why the hearing didn't happen in the first place and not, you know, let's just get this done. We, we want no part of this now. And I think the attorney general in Wyoming, I believe he wanted it to just go away. It then took about three weeks for Phil's life savings to arrive back to him just before he and I met and hopefully in time to be able to make Smart Studios his permanent home. Hopefully he still is patient, you know, because I just got the check a few days ago. The bank is going to take a little bit to look at things. And, you know, I've had expenses in this last point of time, too, which I have to I have to pay off now. So it's it'll be close. Phil's been busy in what's for now his studio, working away on his other dream. I've been really into electronic music. I started going to Burning Man, I think, seven years ago and really getting into some artists out there. At first, I didn't like it at all. It was kind of like, what is this? You know, I've been this guitar, old school, like old blues, like the oldest Ross blues, fife and drum tradition, which is like the start of blues, really. And I think after like hearing my John Lee Hooker albums 20,000 times and Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath, I just, you get tired of that, you know? And I really started to get into electronic music. And four years ago, I started producing it on my own, but I wasn't up to the state I wanted it at yet. And finally, this past year, I started to produce stuff that I felt like was on par with what I was hearing and where I felt like, okay, now I have a voice. A voice known 
as Star Monster. A different voice, but the same voice that is grateful to the Institute for Justice and especially their donors who could be spending their money on fine meals and yachts and instead to freely give of themselves to help hundreds of people like Phil that they've never met. It's just astounded me. It, it really has. All the people from the Institute for Justice, the people that wrote me on Facebook to show their support and started a GoFundMe for me. Like people are offering like, hey, I'll buy it and you can pay me back or like just it really restored my faith in humanity. When things like what had happened to me happened, it, it really makes you question the world you live in and just, God, you know, what, what am I living in? And, and it just makes you feel horrible. But I can't believe how many loving, supportive people there are out there. It, it really blows me away. And great job on that, as always, Alex. And what a story. And what a story about the rule of law. And by the way, we always say we support the vast majority of our law enforcement officials who do a fine and an honorable job. But we've always got to watch out for government power, folks. Always. That's what the Constitution was about. And look what happens in a situation like this. The leverage that law enforcement has and the way a rule can be used to raise revenue. And this is when we always worry, folks, when the law enforcement acts like a revenue agent. They're not. It should be about right and wrong and protecting the country. And what a job that the Institute for Justice does each and every day out there defending an essential right in this country, our property rights. Phil Parhamovich's story, our Rule of Law series, here on Our American Stories.